Hello and welcome to the History of Voting podcast. My name is Chris Oates. I'm your host for this podcast. It's brought to you by One Nation Every Vote, a nonpartisan group sharing the stories of why our votes are so important and how they matter. One Nation Every Vote can be found at 1v.vote. That's O-N-E-V dot V-O-T-E. There you can find the four sections that go into One Nation Every Vote. One Voice, which shares the voices of American voters and their communities. One Village, where you can find this podcast as well as the attitudes towards voting held throughout our history. One Vote, with stories of extremely close elections, many of which were decided by a single vote or were tied and actually decided by a coin flip. And One Victory, with resources to help boost turnout, hopefully past the previous modern midterm record of 48.4% of eligible voters, which was set back in 1966. In today's episode, we are going quite a bit further back than 1966, with a much lower turnout than then. We're going back to 1824, one of the most contentious presidential elections in history, and the impetus for the Jacksonian era, one of the most important in the history of voting in this country. Now, the election of 1824 is said to have ended the era of good feelings. That was the time after the collapse of the Federalist Party when there was effectively one party in the country, the Democratic Republicans, the party founded by Thomas Jefferson. And when I say that they were basically the only party, it's because President James Monroe won election in 1820 uncontested. It was the, uh, only the third time that that had happened and would be the last time that the presidential election would be uncontested. Now, going into the 1824 election, there were four candidates, all from the Democratic-Republican Party. Secretary of State John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts, Treasury Secretary William Crawford of, from Georgia, Speaker of the House Henry Clay from Kentucky, and Senator and former war hero and general Andrew Jackson of Tennessee. Now, with four candidates representing different parts of the country, they split the vote. Jackson won about 41% of the popular vote and 37% of the Electoral College. Adams got 31% of the popular vote and 32% of the Electoral College. Crawford got 11% and 16%, and Henry Clay came in fourth with 13% of the popular vote, but only 14% of the Electoral College. Now, when no candidate receives the majority of the Electoral College, the election goes to the House of Representatives. But, and this is crucial for this election, only the top three candidates of Electoral College votes get to move on to the House, meaning that Henry Clay, Speaker of the House, was no longer in contention and could act like a wild card. Now, at this point, when the election was held and, and when it went to the House of Representatives, Andrew Jackson thought that he was going to become president. He had received the highest total, both in popular vote and the Electoral College. He thought that that meant it gave him legitimacy. However, and this is important to note, the popular vote back then was not as meaningful as it is today. About 352,000 votes were cast in 1824. That represents about 3% of the population of the country. And in Vermont, New York, Delaware, South Carolina, Georgia, and Louisiana, state legislators chose the electors. There was no direct popular vote for it. So going into the vote at the House of Representatives that would choose the presidency, Henry Clay was going to be a powerful figure. And this matters for Andrew Jackson because Henry Clay could not stand Jackson. He said that Jackson would, quote, give the military spirit a stimulus and confidence which could lead to the most pernicious results. In the language of 1824, he was accusing Andrew Jackson of being rough, uneducated, and a potential dictator. So Henry Clay supported John Quincy Adams. The three states that Clay had won went to Adams. Three that had been won by Jackson went also to Adams. 
presumably with Henry Clay giving some influence to the representatives from those states. John Quincy Adams was elected president. He appointed Henry Clay to be his secretary of state. Now, Andrew Jackson and his supporters labeled this a corrupt bargain. In fact, if you read the history books, this is probably a chapter in itself titled The Corrupt Bargain. And even before the House voted on who would be president, news of that deal was spreading through Washington. Jackson and his supporters accused Clay of selling his support to the highest bidder, subverting the wishes of the American people, and betraying American democracy. Now, those grievances and Jackson's ambitions would see the Democratic-Republicans split. Jackson's supporters would become the Democratic Party. The supporters of John Quincy Adams would eventually become the Whig Party. And a new age of political competition would take hold in the United States in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Now, in that era of fierce partisan competition, voting rights expanded. It's often said that this Jacksonian era is where the modern mass political parties started. But was it really a tipping point? Did Andrew Jackson actually lead the partisan fighting that would contribute to the expansion of the right to vote? Or was it an evolution from the patchwork electoral institutions of the revolutionary era towards the mass political participation that would happen later? Or was the story of Andrew Jackson expanding the vote only part of the story? To discuss all this and everything that was happening in American voting at that time, we're joined by Professor Harry Watson of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor, thanks very much for being here. Thank you for involving me. Well, first, uh, I guess our question is, you know, we're covering the Jacksonian era. And what was, what was important about this era in the history of American voting? Why is this still remembered as a turning point from the revolutionary to what would come later? Well, it's a turning point because uh, voting participation uh, shot up very sharply uh, during and immediately after the Jacksonian period. In almost every state, uh, it was illegal for anyone to vote except a white adult male, uh, but the number of white adult males who actually joined in the process did go up very sharply, and as a result, uh, the average politician had to tailor his message to the uh, feelings and the thoughts of that mass audience, whereas before they could target their message to a much smaller group of people. And the result of uh, targeting to a mass audience uh, means that the whole method of uh, getting elected and, frankly, the kinds of decisions and policies that the government adopted once the politicians were elected uh, changed in a more small-p populist direction. And so what, how did the, it uh, advance? I assume it was eliminating property requirements? Actually, no. It's more complicated than that. Uh, it, it, for years, historians said that um, the rules broadened in the Jacksonian era, so the common white men came out and started voting. It's a little more complicated than that. The rules were a lot uh, looser, even as far back as the 1790s than we previously suspected, so much so that probably about three-quarters of American white men could qualify for the vote in uh, the 1790s. The thing was that most of them, most of the time, did not exercise their rights. 
They figured that politics was somebody else's business. It was, uh, you know, not for people like us. And uh, let's let the the guys who were literally the big wigs um, take care of it. Um, from time to time, there would be a, uh, a local election race that made a huge difference to ordinary citizens. And in those cases, they could stream to the polls in numbers that are staggering compared to modern turnout. Like they could come out uh, 80 or 90 percent of the qualified voters might participate in a given election. Uh, but then the next year, uh, it would go back to normal again, and the participation would drop down to 20% or something like that. What happened in the Jacksonian era is that there were political parties organized who realized that the key to their success was jacking up the turnout. They made the rhetoric much more... um, understandable and interesting to the common voter. They had music at the rallies. They had lots of visuals like um, hickory poles going up and banners and torchlight parades. They had uh, songs that everybody would sing during the rally. And then they'd have a speech, and the speech would be full of jokes and um, uh, local allusions that uh, were entertaining. And so people uh, wanted to go to the speech just because they obviously weren't watching television. So uh, the the populist dimension of politics became much more prominent. And on election day, there were party workers who went out and sort of physically rounded up voters, got them in the wagon, and, and took them to the polls and made sure they voted and made sure they got a free drink afterwards if that's what they wanted. Uh, and, or there would be barbecue and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So that when you had people who passionately cared about the outcome of the election, who then dedicated themselves to persuading their fellow citizens that they should be passionately interested in the election as well, then the turnout shot up, and it stayed up for most of the 19th century. Uh, What would you say was kind of the cause of this? Was it related to the spoil system, the fact that your job might rely on the fa- on your candidate winning? The spoil system was certainly a part of it, uh, so that uh, the head of your party's organization in your county might have been able to hope for a job in the post office if his candidate won. But honestly, there just were not enough federal jobs out there to give one to everybody who could deliver his precinct. Instead, the people down at the uh, at the precinct level were people who passionately cared about the outcome. So how did they have that feeling? It was because the United States was going through uh, enormously. Uh, pervasive social and economic changes in the era of the so-called market revolution, where um, people's uh, jobs were being, well, overturned as the Erie Canal or the railroad or whatever it is makes um, 
uh, long-distance trade much cheaper, and it means that if you're a hat maker or a shoemaker here, if somebody can make them cheaper 100 miles away, you lose your job, so you have to find something else to do. Or if you're the beneficiary of all that, you say, hot damn, uh, railroads are great, let's build more of them, let's, uh, if necessary, raise taxes to build them at public expense. So you had political arguments about whether the government should spend its money to promote this kind of economic development or whether it should draw in its horns and try to protect it. an old Republican artisanal uh, subsistence farmer lifestyle that kept everybody, all the white men at least, all the white male voters, more equal but also poorer. So it was almost the fact that government mattered more economically that than it had before, yes. Yeah, so government mattered more economically, therefore politics mattered more to every individual voter. Yes. Would you say that that also increased democracy as we would understand it, where the government was more responsive to the people? Did it feel like in this era that you as the average person mattered more than you did 10 years before? Well, it all depends on who you define as the people. Obviously, uh, women and blacks and Indians were not part of the voting people, and politicians were not more responsive to them, Um, slightly more responsive to women, I think, than to the others, but nevertheless. um, Jackson himself argued that he was the only person in the government who was elected by the entire national electorate, and therefore his will was more reflective of their will than the sort of local elites who packed Congress. And the congressmen, especially if they were anti-Jacksonian, for other reasons, said, oh no, um, uh, we are the... um, unfiltered voice of the people. We have our ear to the ground. We are part of the grassroots. It's our will that is uh, reflective of the will of the American people, and Jackson is a potential tyrant. Those were the folks who gravitated to the anti-Jacksonian Whig Party, and that And the Whig Party was also the one that wanted to uh, proceed more energetically in the transformation of the economy uh, than the Democrats, who were much more um, worried that economic change would make white society more uh, unequal, changes into a society in which some people were employers and everybody else depended on them for a wage. And when that happened, then the employers would call all the shots and um, America would not be an egalitarian republic anymore. Now, there was a big expansion in turnout, but was there was it nationwide or were there states when it lagged? I mean, I know that Rhode Island in particular lagged until about the 1840s, but were there other states yes. that had... Uh, you know, voting rights came much later. Virginia, were there any Virginia had that? much more restrictive voting rights until the 1850s. Um, North Carolina was an oddity in that you had to have 50 acres of land to vote for a member of the state senate, but to vote for anything else from state legislator to president, all you had to do was be a a white adult male who lived in your county for a year and paid taxes. And you didn't even have to, if you look at the 
fine print close enough. You didn't even have to have paid all the taxes you ever had to pay. You just had to show that you'd paid them at one time in your life, sometime. So uh, it was a pretty wide open ballot. So uh, the um, new states beyond the Appalachians were much more proactive about uh, having um, uh, you know, uh, universal white male suffrage. And uh, those, uh, those states were much easier to cast a ballot in. Um, the New England states, some of them anyway, uh, made, uh, were an exception to the rule and allowed black voting. Uh, so New York for a while had um, a provision where if you were a free man of color, you could vote if you owned a certain amount of property, but if you're white, you did not have to own that amount of property. So, in other words, it was a, it was a property requirement for potential black voters, but not for white ones. So, and then they took it, they took that away. One of the consequences of mass participation in politics is that politics became more explicitly racist, uh, and the few places where blacks had political rights, uh, they often lost to them uh, because taking, taking rights away from black people was very popular among many white voters. Um, now, during the Jacksonian era, uh, the 1824 election was incredibly divisive, 1828 as well. Are those, were those elections kind of turning points in how we campaign or how people viewed elections? Because during the so-called era of good feelings, it did seem like there wasn't really presidential campaigns in the same mm-hmm. uh, vigorous, not in the same way. Yeah, where eighteen twenty four was the first time that it it could feel like a modern campaign. Like you could see political journalists tracking Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams around the country if if they had campaigned. So were were they kind of the first modern campaigns, or were they still different in not, some significant Not necessarily. Ways? No, uh, I would I would put that back to 1840 and the, the log cabin campaign because if um, the Jacksonian election saw an uptick in turnout, but not this dramatic uh, spike that you got in 1840 when both First of all, there were two parties, Whigs and Democrats, and both of them were highly mobilized down to the grassroots. And there was a huge issue uh, going on, namely uh, an economic depression that people either blamed on Andrew Jackson or they said um, Jackson Jackson and Van Buren were the only people who saved us from something worse. Uh, So... uh, that created those kind of perfect storm conditions that taught politicians what they could do if they only hustled enough. And um, really, down to 1896, they kept it up. But the 1824 and 28 and 36 and 32 uh, were all examples of how Politicians and journalists were learning the ropes, and uh, they were um, kind of getting started on the techniques that they would pursue full throttle in 1840 and afterwards. 
Well, that is a great promo for our next week's episode on the Reconstruction Era and the week after that on the Progressive Era. Um, Very good. So I want to thank you for promoting the next uh, rest of the this series and also for your time here uh, Professor Harry Watson of the University of North Carolina thank you very much for your time you're most welcome thanks for calling me so that was the Jacksonian era and I have to thank Professor Watson because he illustrated a few things that I and apologies to my high school US history teacher never quite got about that time you know it wasn't something about Andrew Jackson by himself it wasn't Andrew Jackson the person that was solely responsible for meaning that this time saw an uptick in partisan politics and a voter turnout. The 1824 election and Jackson's campaign for the presidency in 1828, when he trounced John Quincy Adams getting 68% of the Electoral College vote, this happened at the same time when politics began to matter on a much more personal level to the average voter. Government policy shaped people's livelihoods, and political parties saw it in their interest to increase turnout. With politics mattering and politicians seeking out voters, the vote spread. Of course, it did not spread to everyone. Much of American society was locked out of the political process, and some people who had the right to vote saw it lost in that time. Next week, we're going to be looking at the most contested and violent time when the vote was extended, fought for, and lost. We're going to be looking at Reconstruction. So that's next week. For this week, thanks for listening to the History of Voting podcast from One Nation Every Vote. You can learn much more about the group at 1v.vote. That is O-N-E-V dot V-O-T-E. If you liked it, please tell your friends, give us good ratings. Anything you can do helps the podcast and the mission of 1v to tell stories about voting in America. The producer for this episode was Riley Dope. My name is Chris Oates. See you next week.